hearts on a sliding scale. So does pleasure in a candy jail. My phone is ringing. Do you want me to get it? Uh, it's totally up to you. I am so sorry. I'll be right back. Sure. It's not important. Okay. It was a uh, fellow David Bermanite, Silver Jew, Purple Mountains enthusiast, actual air acolyte, Zach, Zachariah Phillips, who you know. Oh, we should get him on here. Yeah, we should, actually. That's a good idea. Anyway, go on. I'm Brendan. And I'm Robert. And this is Candy Jail, a podcast that may one day be about David Berman, but today is about Walter Benjamin and A.O. Scott. Yeah, today we're going to discuss a very famous essay by a very famous, at least in some circles, German cultural critic, Walter Benjamin. The essay that we'll be um, trying to make sense of and perhaps debate, although that might be the wrong word, is the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction. And uh, it is arguably his most famous essay. This was written in the 1930s. And um, he had a lot to say about cinema in general. He had recently been exposed to the works of Karl Marx and even met some quote-unquote communist revolutionaries, one of which he fell in love with. We won't necessarily get into that. And then uh, we heard a, an announcement by the you know, decades-long uh, you know, primary film critic at the New York Times, A.O. Scott, announcing that he was leaving his post. He's putting up his hat, hanging up his hat, and essentially just uh, admitting, I guess, or lamenting uh, what he sees as just the ultimate decline of American cinema. And we thought that there might be uh, some nice correspondences to what uh, Benjamin was speaking to and writing about in the 1920s and what A.O. Scott is lamenting in 2023. And I, I should um, point out, you brought the Benjamin to me, and you're familiar with him. You've read a lot of Benjamin. You've studied him in a lot of depth. You're wrestling, I think, with uh, the Arcades Project, which is sort of his unfinished uh, masterwork. And I came to it fresh, without knowing exactly what to expect. And <sighs> and this is kind of a it's kind of a sprawling essay. It's a little bit of a mess, but I, there is some stuff that I just can't like. I I don't. There's a lot of stuff that Benjamin says that I that I agree with, that I think is useful, that I think is worth talking about, that I think is insightful. But also, I'm just want to read you the margin notes some of the margin notes that I wrote. <laughs> Auteur theory in film. Okay, fair enough. No, no, this is so wrong. <laughs> Question mark. This is nonsense. Come on. So it, there's, some, there's some stuff that I, I want to get the negative out of the way, first of all. Um, totally. And yeah, just to chime in very briefly as well, let's do that. And certainly not as a um, debate. I'm curious to hear what what bones you have to pick with him. And honestly, just to hear what you have to say from a pair of fresh eyes and a fresh brain, because as Brendan brought up, and this is certainly not to claim authority uh, or, or claim that I'm some sort of you know tenured professor of Benjamin studies, although there's plenty of those folks around. But I've I have been uh, very intensely engaged with him and sadomasochistically read his entire collected writings, or I guess they call them selected writings. So some uh, Harvard 
professors, or at the very least, um, Harvard's publishing company, uh, put those out over the course of a handful of years. They total four volumes. Volume two is split up into two separate ones because they're so big. So, you know, I bring this up not to brag, although maybe I am trying to brag. Who knows? But uh, just to say that I've been really sucking down a lot of this guy and sort of I'm so in it, you know what I mean, that I'm not sure I can gain critical distance uh, in the way that you can. And so this will be really helpful to hear from you because, yeah, I've been steeped in it. So I want to I wanna get shaken up in a good way. Well, there's, there's two ways to approach the Benjamin, I think, because he was a Marxist and this essay is essentially a Marxian analysis of modern technology and art. So you can approach it as a political piece or you can also approach it as a piece about art. Mm-hmm. And there's very little that he says politically that I disagree with. There's a lot that he says about art that I disagree with because I feel like he's misinterpreting something at a very fundamental level. He starts off by talking a little bit about the history of technology and art and the way that you know the the printing press allowed the dissemination of the written word and then lithography allowed the dissemination of visual artwork and then of course photography and film rapidly accelerated that process to a point where there's now nothing that really can't be reproduced and disseminated around the world and i don't have any problem with any of that but early on in the essay he says as we know the earliest artworks originated in the service of rituals first magical then religious Mm -hmm. well that's not that's not true like i mean i suppose it's possible in some cases but i mean just last year earlier this year there was um a team of researchers who were studying some of the symbol like uh recurring motifs that are in on the walls of some of the european caves mm-hmm. whose mm-hmm. artwork goes back tens of thousands of years and what they figured out was that there were the symbols were being used to to leave messages for hunters who might be following game across seasons and across unfamiliar landscapes so it was a you know a proto written language there was nothing symbolic about it whatsoever it was for it was for the purposes of relaying information to people but beyond that like the there's a basic impulse just you know we're storytellers and we're we're always trying to make sense out of the world and we use creative endeavors to do that and i think that's the those two things the desire to communicate to to leave information for people and the desire to make sense out of the world through creativity that's where art comes from and i his his assertion that it's fundamentally connected to ritual i think is deeply misguided so let me like i have like a thousand different associations so i'm gonna try to not, not get too far afield from the text itself but provide maybe a little bit of biographical background on benjamin and specifically his relationship to Marxism and more specifically his writings and what he exposed himself to. So I think it'll help answer at least a little bit of your confusion, Brendan. Um, From what I've read, he actually um, didn't read Marx extensively. Like his major entry point into Marx's work was somebody else interpreting Marx um, who produced two pretty famous 
among some circles, primers on Marxian economics and what some might call Marxian philosophy. And that was Karl Korsch. And he met Karl Korsch through Bertolt Brecht, who was a very close uh, friend of Benjamin's and actually let him stay essentially for free. I think it was in Denmark um, while he was exiled since, as we know, or if folks don't know, uh, Benjamin was a German, but he was also a Jew. He was raised secular, like many of his contemporaries that are also equally famous, Theodore Adorno being one of them, um, Eric Fromm, people that they would uh, you, you would lump into the group called the Frankfurt School, many of whom were actually successful in escaping to uh, the United States, living in Manhattan for a time and then in uh, Los Angeles. But anyway, I bring this up to say, one, he didn't just sit down and, and read Capital Volume 1 through 3 in a systematic way. And speaking to what you brought up with your sort of befuddlement with this essay, at least in terms of like, I don't, you know, I sort of heard you saying that you can't really find a logical train of thought and that it's messy. And I would completely agree with you. It is fucking messy and it's confusing. And I think that in part speaks to, if we're looking at this from how did Benjamin try to incorporate Marx uh, into his analysis of art, his own exposure to Marx is pretty uh, unique. And one would even say idiosyncratic. And that further, those that encountered him and engaged him in discussions of Marx that were more steeped in it and actually had done that sort of rigorous, systematic, let's go through as much of Marx's corpus as we can in a logical way, came away from those discussions saying, this Benjamin guy, at the very best, he is idiosyncratic, but he's far from orthodox in his understanding of Marx and probably its application into economics and certainly um, art theory, if that's what we're going to call it. So yeah, he is strange. He's a strange bird in that regard. I came of age as a reader and a writer sort of worshipping Nabokov, and Nabokov was famously opposed to any kind of union of art and politics. And I absorbed that idea pretty deeply when I was young. And when I got older and, and a little bit smarter, I realized the degree to which he was misguided and that he tended to oversimplify and you know, his family fled the Russian Revolution and lost everything they had. And then his father was assassinated as part of a um, political dispute. And so he had a lot of really negative associations with politics in general, but also Marxist politics specifically. And it was only a lot later that I understood the degree to which there is a lot of politics in his work that he just doesn't like to use that term to describe. And mm -hmm. the degree to which art is political, um, because everything is, is political on some level. But I still have a knee-jerk reaction. Um, my, my radar pings a little bit when I hear someone writing about art and politics together, because my first question is, is always whether they're misunderstanding like the, whatever the fuck the purpose of art is. Like There are certain things that it isn't like art mm -hmm. isn't meant to be didactic and it isn't meant simply to convey political messages. And whenever I see anybody discussing it as though it is, um, I 
right. you know, I, I, I react with a certain degree of skepticism. I got you. Well, I'm glad that you sort of went where you went because I sort of missed in, in, in wanting to provide a little bit of that biographical background to explain, at least in part, some of the idios the, the idiosyncratic nature of the writing and even the Marxian analysis itself. I wanted to add, because you brought up ritual as your first sort of like red flag or critique. And you're just like, what the heck is he getting at here? And I think that, again, um, maybe I am reading too much into it. And I'm also certainly no expert on uh, Marxian economics. But one word that comes up often in Marx's writings, I think uh, definitely in Capital One, is uh, the fetish character of commodities or commodity fetishism. And I think what Marx was getting at was, in his mind, in an industrial capitalist society like the Germany he was living in, or other parts of Europe at that time, there was a tendency already well underway where people would buy things that were produced by human beings, but because you only go to the store and you lose the whole story of who was in the factory and under what conditions were they working and what were the what was the nature or the process by which this product was put together, put in a car or a truck or a ship to get to a merchant who could then sell it to a consumer. You're basically saying, you know, we buy these products and we, we might actually worship them or see it sort of like they magically are just in the store. And because we're divorced from the whole story about how that product got to us, we have perhaps a tendency to fetishize not only the object itself, like worshiping it, but think that maybe it just fell out of the sky. And so I think what Benjamin's getting at without spelling it out, and I could be reading too much into this, um, but I am keeping in mind that it is a Marxian analysis um, in the end, that he's attaching ritual to art objects the same way Marx attaches the fetish character to commodities and saying this is a problem. That's interesting. And I think that there are times in the essay when it seems to me like maybe Benjamin is confusing the physical object that is a work of art, for instance, a painting with a, a broader concept of why that thing exists or mm. um, what the painter got out of painting it and what we get out of seeing it. He's very concerned with what he calls the aura of an object, which is the physical object, but then everything associated with it. And he talks about how when photography was invented and you could photograph paintings, you were destroying the authenticity of the painting because you were destroying its aura. You were basically taking it out of its context. Mm -hmm. And that is true to a certain extent, to a limited extent, for the actual physical painting that is hanging on the wall of a church or a museum or a house or whatever. But I, I don't know to what extent you can apply that same concept to other forms of artwork. Um, for instance, what is the aura of a novel? Or what is the aura of a poem that is passed down through oral tradition? Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And for that matter, what is the aura of a movie that was made by 
hundreds if not thousands of different people doing different jobs, many of whom never had any contact with one another. Um, yeah. You know, under the sort of grand artistic vision of one or two or three or four people kind of at the top of that pyramid. Like, I, I, there's, it's, it's a different kind of thing. Yeah. And he definitely does the reader no favors uh, regarding clarity over these terms. Or even we could say, and I say this with respect, but nonetheless, like, you know, trying to give this a deep read and be honest about it, um, a certain maybe inconsistency with the application of these terms. Like, you know, in the beginning, he establishes or, def or you know, uses the word aura. Then we get authenticity and originality sort of bound up in this, you know, holy trinity. And then um, what else does he give us? What's the other word that I'm... Originality um, is the other one. And so these are all sort of like clearly constellating with one another, bound up in each other. But at the beginning of the essay, I'm like, okay, is aura something we're trying to get rid of? At other parts of the essay, I'm like, wait, is aura not something we're trying to get rid of, but just something we're acknowledging exists in original works of art that get sort of um, dissolved in art that is produced through technology that by its nature is geared towards mass reproduction. And so there's that issue of just like, if we actually did a systematic you know, analysis of every instance these words pop up and when Benjamin is using them, I think we actually would find some confusion. Uh, maybe not from him, but at least like, wait a second, there's at the very least nuance, like intense nuance or paradox present in how he's using these words. And it's unclear where he lands. It, it doesn't seem to me like it's a black and white, you know, aura is good or aura is bad. But then he throws in, right, nature. He says aura is the shade that when a tree is hit by the sun at a certain hour in the day casts on the ground and a sunset illuminated behind a mountain range is the aura of those mountains. And I'm going, I don't think he's helped me at all here. <laughs> in some ways he's made this worse, um, but it might be on me. I'm willing to accept that it's my confusion, not his. Right. And then, so by extension, like if I go to a museum and I stand in front of a painting that was originally commissioned to be hung in a church in Italy, mm. but now it's hanging in a museum in the United States in the 21st century. And I sit there and I like experience the painting and I'm overwhelmed by the beauty or the, the sense of history or whatever. Is that then part of the painting's aura? Like, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what if I'm looking at a reproduction of a painting on my phone and having a positive reaction to it, like I did the other day? Like, is that part of the aura? Because this is at that point we've we're we're into so many different levels of reproduction that that my relationship to the original painting is essentially non-existent. I've never seen a thing. I've only seen reproductions of it on electronic devices. So he does say he does write. Uh, at a certain point in the essay, when he starts transitioning from his reflections on different art forms, uh, theater, like a theatrical production, a live performance, sculpture, painting, etc. That, and I think theater is the is the key example in in where we're headed. He says, you know, when you're if you go to a theater and you watch a performance of Hamlet that the actor on stage actually does have an aura and the aura is tied to his person. And you can only encounter that aura if you are physically in an audience watching a physical performance on a stage. 
He then uses that to transition into a film actor saying something very different is happening. And actually, the film actor is performing not in front of people anymore, but in front of an apparatus, which is, I guess, halfway true. He's performing in front of a director at the very least with a crew, as you pointed out, since there's always at least, I think, in a normal big budget movie, dozens of people on set at any given time. But I think he's getting at something key about Aura is attached to an original object, be that Van Gogh's Starry Night or an actual human being. And when a human being performs Hamlet, but instead of it being on a stage, it's in front of a camera, the aura, according to Benjamin, is dissolved. But then, it, but then, and this is where it gets interesting, I don't think he is making that claim as a negative thing or something to grieve. He seems to actually be positioning it if not neutrally, I might even say positively. Uh, yeah, I agree with you that it's, it, well, it's sometimes hard to tell whether he's being neutral or negative or positive towards something. And he makes observations that kind of, because I disagree with him so strongly, they they make me question some of the other things that I don't entirely understand. But like at one point he says, and, he and actually, consider- before you go, let's yeah. let's do this, man. Like, I want to take us through your your top five or whatever they were that you're just like, this is bullshit or this I vehemently disagree with. I want to know what those are. Okay. Well, number one was the thing about ritual. Yeah. I guess the second one would be film is the first art form whose artistic character is entirely determined by its reproducibility. The mm. film is therefore the artwork most capable of improvement. Mm-hmm. Um, I I was so confused by that. It's like, I mean, a, a film is highly editable, and now it's more editable than it ever was because you just go into Avid or Final Cut Pro and change your movie as many times as you want to. But he seems to be at some points laboring under the illusion that film that there's something fundamentally different about the way that film is produced. He talks about other works of art being created at a single stroke. And there is no art that's created at a single stroke. I mean, you know, you, you might get, you might have a burst of inspiration or you might get lucky and point your camera at the exactly the right thing in exactly the right way and not have to do anything to the photograph afterwards. But like making art of any kind is usually a long and laborious process. And even art that, we think of as being the product of a single talent or a single genius often isn't right i mean i mean i mean it sort of is but like nabokov wrote showed everything he ever wrote to his wife and got her feedback uh stephen king does that writers have editors writers share things with people and get feedback you know i i have a friend who's a painter and he will occasionally send me unfinished paintings just to get my input um mm-hmm. So most art involves a degree of collaboration and all of it is highly editable and everything goes through a million revisions before it reaches the point when it's presented to its audience. And so the idea that film is the artwork most capable of improvement, I just think is nonsense. Like he's, he's just missing something fundamental there. Um, So let me jump in and just say like, I think you bring up really good points. The only art form that I've ever actually like witnessed as like single stroke artwork is something like Zen calligraphy, you know, where it's actually folded into the process that if you can 
make this beautiful you know piece of calligraphy literally in a single stroke um it is the mark of mastery but with that being said like here's what i came up with for that portion of the essay and i also want to start by saying he makes a curious statement at the beginning of it i don't know if you caught it where he says that socialism as a political project came on the scene was born at the same moment that film was born and i'd have to look that up uh, and see who he's thinking of and what in fact would herald the quote-unquote beginnings or the birth of socialism as a political project. But there's clearly something going on there where you brought up at the beginning of this that, you know, not all art needs to be political, certainly not didactic, but art can be political and powerful. But he's clearly tying um, these two things together as at least being co-emergent. Here comes socialism here comes cinema. So here's what I wrote. Um, and it sort of, I think, speaks to your suspicions that Benjamin might be missing the mark here. So I wrote that in acknowledging the infinite improvability and malleability of reproducible work, it's but a small step to acknowledging the infinite malleability and improvability of social arrangements. So if works of art are not eternal, which he claims the Greeks were pretty obsessed with, um, trying to create artworks that illustrated or promoted a sense of eternality or perfection. So if works of art are not eternal, like for instance, Greek sculpture, neither are the social arrangements we find ourselves currently living in. Our society is a living organism subject to change rather than a sculpture, which you could argue is fossilized and finished if the end goal is to promote a kind of eternal quality. And then I think he uses that to say, if that's the messages, if that's the message or the value that is pregnant in every work of ancient Greek sculpture, how does that then reflect back on the society itself? And I think he's making the claim that the ancient Greeks thought their society was had reached a stage of being finished and um, being totally perfected. And he's kind of saying, well, the Greeks have got it wrong, and they just had a social arrangement that emerged in a particular time and place, and it was subject to change. And, and that film, being a contemporary uh, phenomenon, of an industrial, what he's calling industrial capitalist society, or at least I am, but I know he's reading it through Marx, that they had the sculpture, we have the film. But the film might actually be more in keeping with reality if we are defining reality as something that is in a constant state of change, which would then mean our societies are open to change, hopefully change for the better. And then he ties that into the malleability of film in that you can edit, re-edit, cut, recut, reshoot, shoot 3,000 yards, as he mentions with Chaplin's film, to only use a small amount of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, you might be right that he's it's a bit of a stretch that works are completed in a single stroke. But I think he is focused more intently on this idea of, on the one hand, you have works of art that claim to be finished and perfect. And I think he is saying, at least implicitly, this is problematic 
in how that then reflects on um, people trying to make sense of their societies. And I think he's posing the argument as socialism is that, and uh, you know, there could be a danger in historical determinism. You don't want to say we're on this steady line march of progress, which he actually himself takes issue with as very famously does the Frankfurt School. They really hate this word progress and thinks it's think that it's grossly misused in both history and philosophy. But with that that's, being said, you look, know. that's that's interesting because yeah. that's I also hate that word, but it's something that I've only really come to understand pretty recently. And it's so easy in conversations of this kind to slip into that unconscious progress mindset where mm. you because it's just it makes it, it makes a lot of sense to us on some level that we as a species are trending in a certain direction or we as a culture are trending in a certain direction and that we're moving towards some sort of improvement. But he's, I mean, Benjamin would be right to, to distrust that word. But there could, I'm sort of like, if you're taking issue with him maybe saying that film is the most improvable and therefore superior to sculpture, he might inadvertently be falling into a kind of march of progress, historical determinism that he's trying to actually wiggle out of, I think. Right. You know? Well, I think there's just like, okay, so my next <laughs> my next marginal note is maybe in your world, buddy, um, <laughs> in reference to his line, again, it's italicized because he thinks it's so important. The stage actor identifies himself with a role. Mm. The film actor very often is denied this opportunity. His performance is by no means a unified whole, but is assembled from many individual performances. I mean, I, I understand that this is pre-method acting and pre-Stanislavski and all that kind of thing, but really, like, if the film actor doesn't identify with the role. Like, that's just factually incorrect. And the, and so, like, whenever he talks about film, he just gets things wrong. And because he gets these things wrong about um, just basic elements of film and filmmaking, when he then tries to draw broader conclusions about the nature of the modern world through film, I don't trust him, yeah. even if I'm sympathetic to his aims. So it's funny because like another biographical aside, Gershom Sholem, who wound up being arguably his best friend who did emigrate to Palestine and tried to urge Benjamin to follow. And Benjamin, of course, never did. But he recollects that when they met in their youth, he Benjamin had this tendency and everyone seemed to give him a pass to sort of speak authoritatively and write authoritatively, and people just were so impressed by his intelligence, by his erudition, that he just did that. So it's funny you bring this up because it's definitely a personality trait where, you know, I mean, I say this with respect to Benjamin, but there could be a kind of arrogance where you read these lines and go, okay, so according to what or to whom do you base this claim or you're just saying it? Because as you know, right, in education, I could see this essay, if I wrote that and turn that into a professor, it coming back going, this is what we refer to as a blanket statement. Here's why blanket statements are problematic, yada, yada. And as much as I have my own issues with academic standards and often the arbitrary nature of what counts as formal writing, he clearly does have a tendency to just like say something and you kind of picture this booming, deep, authoritative voice. And we're supposed to just, I guess, take that and 
agree or just based on his own yeah. purported yeah. authorities think he must be right, you know? Last one, and then we can move on to other stuff in here. But he, and again, I've already mentioned the ritual thing, but early in the essay, he says, the elk depicted by Stone Age man on the walls of his cave is an instrument of magic mm. and is exhibited to others only coincidentally. What matters is that the spirits see it. There's so much arrogance in that conclusion. I mean, first of all, he's doing what you just mentioned. He's asserting that as fact with mm-hmm. a lot of with confidence when it's it's not a fact. But even if it were a fact, he doesn't seem to have put any thought into the kind of work that you would have to do to know that that was true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's a simplistic reading of um, why people make art, and it's a simplistic understanding of what people in the Stone Age might have been like. And it does, I think, betray this unconscious bias towards progress. Like He himself is in the 20th century. He's writing about people in the Stone Age, and his implication is that we've come a long way since then in mm-hmm. terms of what we do with art. I think that you're, you've put your finger on some really important pieces. And all I can say is, and because I had the same response to you, I read it, I think it's a funny paradox where it's like every time I reread this thing, I find fresh insights or at the very least statements that I am just like fascinated by. And at the same time, the more I read, the more I must admit it does read quite messily. Like it doesn't seem to be organized in a coherent way. And so I bring this up just to say like, you know, at least in the humanities, like I think sociology, I don't know about psychology, history, philosophy of history, philosophy itself, he seems to have impacted, similarly to Marx, nearly all the social sciences, linguistics even. Um, But I'm not sure that he's impacted them because his statements have been proven to be categorically correct. I think it's just like his mind was so fertile and it wound up making such unusual connections that it gave plenty of future folks, right, tons to work with, even if the statements themselves proved to be false. Um, It's just fertile thinking that is rich and ready to be mined. And I think it has been. And so I'm with you. Like, I think it's messy. I think it's at times even some of the statements just aren't right. But I wonder if that can be made sense of or that can be sort of put alongside the recognition that maybe the most important thing is just that he started asking these kinds of questions or making these kinds of connections. And that cleared the way for a lot of future thinkers. Yeah, I think that's fair. But he would have had a podcast if he were alive today. (laughs) He did, actually. He did radio uh, broadcasts. Oh, all right. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Um, Do any of those survive? They did not survive in audio form, but they survived in transcript form. Uh, So he either wrote long transcripts himself, I can't remember, but yes, actually a book has been published called Radio Free Benjamin that collects that, whatever they could find of his radio work. Interesting. Yeah. So moving away from, well, I guess we can, I think we can pivot away from, from what I take objection to. Because when he isn't confusing himself about how film is made or what the purpose of art is, he has some insightful things to say about uh, the relationship between art and fascism and also between 
producers of art and their audience. He says later in the essay that the um, the masses have a right to changed property relations. Fascism yeah. seeks to give them expression in keeping these relations unchanged. I think that's extremely well put. It. I, I wonder what he would have thought of the you know the current obsession with superhero movies. And I've always objected to those movies very strongly, not because I'm too highbrow to enjoy special effects and explosions or anything like that, but because at the heart of most superhero mythologies is the idea that someone stronger than us is going to protect us. And that in and of itself is a I mean, it's fine to tell stories about, but it's a it's a dangerous thing to believe, and it's a dangerous kind of wish to have. And as a premise for like an artistic investigation of the world, it's it's pretty flimsy. And what ends up happening, you know, in I mean, who are the Avengers battling in the Avengers movies? They're battling another imaginary villain, right? They're not battling the things that are actually going wrong in our world. And so not only are the superhero movies based on the idea that it's not our responsibility to solve our problems, but they're not even honest about what the problems to be solved are. And in yeah. some cases, like, you know, Batman is the really obvious example. Batman is a billionaire who is going to save the world by fighting petty crime with his billions of dollars. Like that is a fundamentally fascist vision. <laughs> um, and so the idea that to quote Benjamin again, fascism seeks to give them to give people expression in keeping property relations unchanged. Mm -hmm. That is a description of the Batman movies. Um, mm -hmm. And I think more generally, it's a description of most superhero movies in general. There are probably like, I would give Black Panther a pass, for instance, but like, generally speaking, I think that's, that's true. And which, you know, I'm, I don't know. I don't know how to finish that thought exactly. Well, it gets really, really messy. I mean, the final line, let's see if I can get it right. He says, uh, fascism aestheticizes politics communism politicizes art and it's a wonderfully elegant snappy final line that i yes. think both of us responded positively to absolutely with the caveats that this could be misread as a reductive black and white sort of oversimplified description of good versus bad art but to loop back into what you were speaking to it's so difficult, man, because like I think of um, Charlie Chaplin, who's mentioned in his essay, in Benjamin's essay, and he'd written about him in previous essays, some of uh, some that are quite short, but it's obvious he really, really liked him and was a big fan. And Chaplin himself self-identified as a socialist, actually to such a degree that the United States uh, like deported him from the country. Uh, only to bring him back in the 70s to give him a Lifetime Achievement Oscar, um, which is kind of interesting to watch. But I bring this up to say, like, he's friends with Brecht. Brecht is a playwright. Some would level the charge against Brecht that he was definitely didactic. 
in his approach to art production. Right. right. And he he had this whole thing about in Brecht's like theory of epic theater, where he's like, listen, I am committed wholeheartedly to making the audience, to transforming the audience from passive spectators. So I'm thinking like those of us watching Mickey Mouse for entertainment into active participants. He seemed very sort of, what's the word, Um, ideologically committed as an artist, political artist to produce work that engendered active participation, whatever that means. And so I bring all this up, man, just to say like, here's where this gets tricky. Even with that final line that both of us thought was elegant. Again, I'll repeat it because I like it and I want to see if I can get it right again. So fascism aestheticizes politics, communism politicizes art. Well, if you take Chaplin as the example, who Benjamin obviously holds in high esteem and is an example of the kind of art that he would see as right or correct or good. Um, I've heard arguments from the left that say that Chaplin's highly problematic because let's say you're a blue collar worker, you're a wage slave, so to speak, you're being exploited, you're exhausted from day after day of you know barely making it, and you just want to relax at the end of the day, have a beer and watch a movie. And you go and you watch Chaplin and you laugh and maybe you cry. And there's a real catharsis that comes from connecting with the tramp, which is a beautiful character. I love that character. Some on the left have actually leveled critiques at Chaplin saying, you know, he's wrong because it's an opiate of the masses. They get their sort of ventilation by going to the movies and then they go to bed and do it all over again. And in that regard, they actually uh, would label it anti-revolutionary which I find astounding. I don't agree with that at all. But I think well, it the, the shows you how will, problematic this is, you know? Yeah, the left will always come for itself. Like, it will always, you know, cannibalize itself and fall out in, you know, internecine disputes. Um, True. There are probably reasons to come for Chaplin for totally non-political reasons, but only the left would come for a man who made a film parodying Hitler while Hitler was still alive. Like, Jesus Christ. Like, you know. Yeah, totally. And I watched that recently, by the way, and it's pretty damn impressive. Uh, It's a cool movie. Right. But yeah, I just bring this up to say, like, if he makes this grand statement that fascism aestheticizes politics and communism politicizes art, and then he goes, see, look at Chaplin. I could easily see Brecht turning to Benjamin and snortling in a smug way and saying, you fucking fool. They're just put it. This movie's putting them to sleep. I'm trying to wake them up. And then I'm going, oh my gosh, this, this is going to be trouble. You know? Yes. Yeah, exactly. The Judean people's front versus the people's front of Judea all over again. Yeah, exactly. The other thing that Benjamin says in here that I thought was insightful especially given where we are in the world right now and and the A.O. Scott thing that we're going to talk about, he says that the distinction between author and public is about to lose its axiomatic character. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't anticipating anything like social media, but he was inspired by the rise of things like letters to the editor columns 
and the increased ability of the average person to get their voice into print in some context. Um, mm. Well, okay, so let me, I read that Benjamin quote. Let me read then a quote from an interview that A.O. Scott gave to the New York Times about his decision to leave film criticism. Yeah, um, perfect. He says, I'm not a fan of modern fandom. This isn't only because I've been swarmed on Twitter by angry devotees of Marvel and DC and Top Gun and everything everywhere all at once. It's more that the behavior of these social media hordes represents an anti-democratic, anti-intellectual mindset that is harmful to the cause of art and antithetical to the spirit of movies. Fan culture is rooted in conformity, obedience, group identity, and mob behavior, and its rise mirrors and models the spread of intolerant, authoritarian, aggressive tendencies in our politics and our communal life. What do you think about that? I mean, I think I agree with pretty much everything he said, although, you know, there's a few things. One is, it's like he's just, it's like because he's still, and I say this with respect, I have no disrespect towards A.O. Scott. I actually have read, I think, a lot of his reviews. I couldn't quote them, but... Um, I don't have any bones to pick with the guy, but I think it's interesting. And granted, we all have to make a living and there's nothing I think intrinsically wrong with being a journalist or a film critic, but it's like he's leveling a fairly radical critique, not just at movies, but even at, I think, American society in general, but he's stopping just short of like naming the issues. And so I don't think he's dumb. I think he's clearly done his homework and thought a lot. And so I find it just curious that he's willing to say, sort of lament or grieve what he's seeing as the decline of cinema as we know it, but he's not willing to say something like, this is a result of corporate entities that have the bottom line as their obsession. And as a result, are producing garbage like these Marvel franchises. But then you think of old Hollywood and the cliche of just like the director always being at odds with the production company that wants to ruin his his artwork. And so this is nothing new. But at the same time, maybe it is something new in that there was still room for other people to step up to the plate. And I think that's what A.O. Scott was getting at is that, yeah, of course, um, Hollywood is an industry and it's there to make money. And so you're going to have a lot of garbage in general. But the garbage to artistic achievement ratio is kind of what I'm hearing and what he's saying there. Uh, maybe 20, 30, 40 years ago was much different than it is today, where maybe the, the good stuff, um, there was enough of it to offset the garbage. And now he's saying, there's so much garbage, I'm not even sure I can see any good stuff. Is that how you're reading this? Not exactly. Um, mm. There is a podcast that I listened to with A.O. Scott where I think he was pretty clear that he thinks there are still a lot of good movies out there. Um, right. I think there are two things that he's interested in, and more more than a dearth of good movies, it's the kind of movies that are dominating the culture right now and the relationship that fans of those movies have to to the people who make them and then to the people who criticize them one of the first things i when, so when i was in high school my friend um gave me this volume of oscar wilde 
and mm-hmm. like this beautiful old volume that was like 75 years old and the kind of book where the first thing you do is you open it up and you smell the pages right i'm glad i'm and, not alone <laughs> and i read that thing from cover to cover um i became obsessed with oscar wilde for a while in a rather obnoxious way um i remember once observing to my grandmother who was a very sweet person in the parking lot of a strip mall irish pub where we were going for some kind of family celebration i remember telling her that in a sense a personality was just a collection of faults <laughs> because i thought it was the kind of pithy incisive thing that oscar wilde would have said but wilde who i've i'm not nearly as much of an admirer of now as i was back then but he has an essay called The Critic as Artist, hmm. in which he discusses the idea that the critic who is analyzing art is himself engaging in an artistic endeavor. And so mm-hmm. that was kind of like, that was my first exposure to the the idea of criticism as a part of a conversation that's ongoing between people who create things and people who enjoy or don't enjoy what they create. And that's per- arguably an unnecessarily elevated view of criticism, but it's it's sort of the the diametric opposite of the modern culture that we seem to be living in. Where, I mean, it, being the film critic at the New York Times is basically as ivory tower as it gets in some sense, right? Like you are high, high above, you know, in your office in one of the most esteemed publications in the world. You're established. You're established, and you're you're insulated to a certain extent. Um, and in fact, one of the criticisms that's often leveled against publications like the New York Times is that they're too isolated, they're too aloof, um, they're on an island. And if even A.O. Scott can feel the sting of mm-hmm. ang- angry fans and even angry actors, I mean... He cites the fact that Sam Jackson came for him on Twitter because he gave a mediocre review to an Avengers movie. I remember a couple years ago, there was an incident where a music critic, uh, I think, wrote a complimentary review of a Lizzo record, but also singled out some criticisms that they had of that record. And then Lizzo got on Twitter and came for that critic. And I don't even want to get into like, I mean, anybody can say, whatever they want to whomever they want however they want to say it i I don't want to get into the propriety uh, or appropriateness of artists clapping back at critics nobody should be immune from from criticism but like what i guess what i'm interested in is what is is there a connection and if so what is the connection between the the current Hmm. culture of fans coming for critics who try to think and and um you know reflectively criticize works that they're a fan of and the nature of those works themselves. Yeah. You bring up, I mean, there's so much that came up for me as you spoke to this and I can't help but think about like, you know, on a broader level, just when we reflect on democracy, which I think is one of those words that's bandied about similar to fascism actually, where we use it a lot, but I'm not sure we're all in agreement as to what it means. Like I had, um, I think Ian Kershaw, the historian, in one of his books wrote, it might have been a different writer, but I'm connecting this to Kershaw. He said something like, fascism is one of those words that it's like trying to nail jelly to a wall. 
You know, it's just really hard to pin down. And so keeping in mind, or at least acknowledging, like, I know democracy is a contested and what would you call it? Loosely used word, arguably to the point at, at present that it's lost a lot of its meaning. But if we call ourselves a representative democracy in the United States uh, or a republic, and that part of what makes us a democracy is our ability to disagree with one another, but not um, let those disagreements tear us down, destroy us, and further, that actually a certain amount of disagreement is healthy. And is the sure is a sign of the health of a democracy to some degree. If we're measuring health as the ability of different people to hold opposing views without those opposing views being shoved down anyone's throat or coerced to do something someone doesn't want to do, that we can we can tolerate. There's that word, uh, a certain degree of of collective disagreement. And so, on the one hand, I could say maybe the People coming at A.O. Scott and others on Twitter is just a sign of a healthy democracy, but actually my gut tells me it's not, and that actually there is something worrisome about that. And so maybe what I'm asking you, man, is like, if you're in agreement that one of the signs of a healthy democracy, if we're both in agreement that democracies are sought after in their ideal form, uh, if one of the markers of a healthy democracy is collective toleration of opposing viewpoints that can just coexist, even if it's uncomfortable. When does that cross the line into something else that is actually destructive and harmful? And is what we're hearing from Scott and what's happened to him and maybe others that you've mentioned, something that's beyond just people disagreeing with each other? I, I don't know. I'm thinking like, I'm imagining the world as it was 25, 30 years ago, maybe two people are standing in line to go see a movie. And one of them says to the other, you know, A.O. Scott gave this a really bad review. And the other person responds, well, A.O. Scott can go fuck himself. And then that's the end of the conversation, right? Yeah. Now, of course, you, you can pull out your phone and you can tweet at A.O. Scott, go fuck yourself. And I hate the idea that that's a huge difference, but I think that's a huge difference. I mean, it, it seems over overly simplistic, but I don't I don't think it is. But the other part of it is the kind of movie that elicits that "go fuck yourself" reaction <laughs> when people criticize it, right? And it it does seem to be centered on, I guess, two related things. One is superhero movies and the the massive cultural domination of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And the other is franchises that just keep rebooting themselves or turning out sequels, you know, Fast and Furious and Star Wars and all that kind of thing. And we've all heard people bemoan the lack of original intellectual property. We've all heard people bemoan the very term intellectual property. I mean, and there was a lot of positive conversation this year around the fact that the Best Picture Oscar went to Everything Everywhere All at Once, which is an original uh, story. It's not part of a franchise, but it's also, I mean, that movie is basically, you know, it's, it, is, it is an original story, but it's also a pastiche of so many other things that 
those guys love that it's not really that original i guess you know it's it's adjacent to the matrix and martial arts movies and a lot of other things i'm glad you brought that up yeah and it sounds like i did i did not read ao scott's review of that movie um but it sounds like he had some criticisms of it and the fans responded to him much the same way that fans of the marvel movies might but the idea that at some level these movies are they're not they're not dumb in a harmless way the way that a lot of movies are that there's there's something fundamentally simultaneously vapid but also dangerous in the way that they approach the world and maybe in the way that they conceive of their audience and the way that they encourage their audiences to conceive of themselves that the 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 whole concept of superheroes to me has something i feel like i'm being condescended to Mm -hmm. and not to bring up nabokov again but to bring up nabokov again when he and his family immigrated to the u.s at around the beginning of World War II is when Superman was um, first getting popular in the United States. And his his son liked Superman and loved reading the Superman comics. And Nabokov wrote a poem, which I think was rejected by the New Yorker. I don't remember. They might have published it. But he wrote a poem, which is about what happens when Superman gets a hard one and then is going to have an orgasm. He can't actually come inside of anybody because his sexual partner would basically just explode right and to me like sounds like a masterpiece by the way it's a good poem it's a good poem but to me like that's the appropriate way to think about superman like Hmm. you know the the little the little kids who argue with each other like (laughs) could superman defeat a tyrannosaurus rex like you know could superman defeat batman all that kind of thing like they're on the right track like that's the level of attention that that kind of like a superman concept deserves like you argue about whether Superman could defeat, you know, Godzilla, and then you make jokes about Superman having orgasms, and then you move on to something else. Like, that's it. And I feel like in being asked to take Superman seriously as a, as a way of interpreting the world or as a way of analyzing the world, not to mention every other, pretty much every other superhero, that I am being condescended to. And we've now, you know, if you want to start like the MCU started, I think, with the first Iron Man movie, which was first decade of this millennium. You know, we're now 20 years into movies that I would make the argument that however well made they are, they are condescending to their audiences. And the audiences, in some cases, I wonder, are responding by allowing themselves to be condescended to. So, okay, a few things. First off, I'm glad you brought up Iron Man because I read, I think this came from the film critic, but also like really film academician, Mike Wayne. He's written a number of interesting texts um, in film studies, actually cites Iron Man and says, if you really pick this apart, you could make a very, I think, compelling argument that this is propaganda you look at when the first Iron Man came out, it was very close to the invasion of Iraq. You look at the enemies that the Iron Man character is fighting, they're Middle Eastern. And he's again a billionaire that is creating, you yeah. know, this body, you know, suit and everything that comes with it to fight the Middle Eastern scourge, you know. And basically Wayne was arguing 
this at the very least is a fairly explicit promotion and even celebration of the military industrial complex and also yes. just militarism in general. And this is, um, we need to be paying attention to this. And so, yeah, I think the same way that some young people today could watch a Western and mock it for John Wayne's sort of gendered macho persona or the chauvinism present, the misogyny, the uh, gender roles in general that are being sort of reinforced through these films. They can put their finger on all that and make fun of it to, you know, the ends of the earth and then go and watch Iron Man and not catch for a second these kinds of things that are sort of arguably embedded in Marvel movies. Yeah, I think that's a that's an extremely astute point. And I've, I've also read uh, at least one piece about the fascism that's inherent in the, um, you know, the Batman movies that Christopher Nolan directed and and I, I should I should clarify that I like I haven't always been this insufferably snobbish about superhero movies. Like I saw the Christopher Nolan Batman movies in the theater, and at the time, like you know, I enjoyed them. And but you know, I I do remember even at the time being frustrated by Nolan's tendency as a writer to he wants to explore or he thinks he wants to explore complicated moral questions. So in The Dark Knight, you've got that scene where you have the two fairies and one fairy is filled with so dumb criminals and one is filled with regular people and each supposedly has the ability to blow up the other. It's a kind of prisoner's dilemma. And it's an interesting attempt. I went, I was interested when I saw that movie the first time to see where he was going to go with it. And where he goes with it is basically nowhere. I agree. Like, that was fails, so dumb. He fails to do anything whatsoever interesting with it or reflective with it, and which I think basically summarizes Christopher Nolan movies in general. But I, I wonder if that's also symptomatic of this larger tendency in a lot of these big blockbusters to act like they're dealing with something serious when they're actually not. And so my objection to them then isn't the fact that they don't deal with anything serious. I don't care about that at all. It's that they they act like they do, and they talk to their audience like they do, and they expect their audience to believe them. So, yeah, I mean, like, I want to just go back to your sort of worry about potentially sounding snobbish, because I hear the tension in this, where I'm, I think, having very similar readings to the Marvel Universe films that you are, and going like, this is fucked up. And at the same time, I can't help but be haunted by... Um, I think I encountered this in the writer Isaiah Berlin, who was far from a leftist, um, but said something along the lines of um, he had critiques leveled at Rousseau. He really was not a fan of Rousseau. And I think I've got my issues with him, although I haven't, I didn't spend nearly as much time with him as Berlin did. But essentially, his major criticism of Rousseau's philosophy, the social contract, what he was reading into it was, he felt Rousseau was saying to the masses, you think you like X, you think you like that Big Mac, but I'm here to tell you that actually you don't like that. And if you don't know you don't like that, I'm here to say that I know better than you know what's good for you. Let me put you in the right direction. And Berlin basically says, this is, even if that's true, which I think he finds highly questionable, 
it's so fucking condescending. And so if we take that same example and pivot over to our Marvel discussion, are we not potentially running the same risk of saying like, you think you like this, let me tell you why you're being condescended to that in itself is condescending, you know? And so I want to be careful. I'm not saying you've done this, but I'm trying to be aware of the fact that like, it's not up to me to dictate to someone else their taste. And if their taste lead them into a Marvel movie again and again, uh, who am I to tell them not to? And so a final piece, final, another example, this was when, a guy named Jacques Barzun, who wrote a bestseller in his 80s, by the way, which bodes well for us, or at least for me, called From Dawn to Decadence, also not a leftist, but he basically was leveling a critique at Marx, and he was looking at what he was calling um, uh, the labor theory of value, which is central to Marxian economics, and basically saying that at the end of the day, the value of a given commodity can be traced back to the workers and the energy and labor that they put into the making of that product. And then in comes Barzun and he says, well, what about pearls? Do Are pearls valuable because divers die for them or do divers die for them because they're valuable? And so again, you know, it's the same idea of are we putting the cart before, not the cart before the horse, but are we, are we being assholes? <laughs> To say to, you know, a huge swath of moviegoers, you think you love these and you've got it all wrong, <laughs> you know? I, I would rephrase it a little bit maybe and say, are we being assholes by saying you are wrong to love this thing? Right. Okay, there it is. I don't know. I'm thinking about two extremes. One is you're in high school you go to pick up your friend, your really cool friend that you've always admired because they're cooler than you are. And you've got your music playing in the tape deck and your friend hops in your car and ejects the tape and says, listen to this, and puts in a new tape and turns it up and it's the coolest music that you've ever heard. That's one extreme. The other extreme is jazz guy who can't stop talking about jazz and how much he loves jazz. And I, I don't think that there's anything in between those two extremes. Like those are the two options, basically. Um, mm. But at the same time, neither of those scenarios involve any kind of moral consideration, right? Your friend just has cool taste in music and wants to share it with you. And Jazz Guy is just snobbish and unable to communicate properly with people. Those are not moral issues. I mean, I watched that Kenny G documentary that came out a couple years ago, and I was fascinated by it, and I was glad I watched it. And Kenny G seems like he's probably a very nice person, and I have no problem with the idea that all of his fans are totally wrong for liking his music. But I don't care. Like It's not my business. I'm just not going to listen to Kenny G. This, I think, is a little bit different. And and A.O. Scott is in a public position and he is publicly leaving that public position for reasons that he has explicitly linked to concerns about the rise of fascism. And so I think there are probably more and less assholish ways to respond to the rise of fascism, mm. but I, I think I'd be concerned with them only if I was trying to publicly communicate in a way where I was trying to change somebody's mind. That makes sense. And I hear you. And like, I think you've also just like really cleanly 
um, articulated why this is such a difficult thing to unpack. And I think in part it's difficult because this is the place where politics and culture meet. And it's similar to, it kind of does refract back on Benjamin's, some of Benjamin's points. And so on the one hand, I'm going, like, I started thinking about, you know, this tendency we're seeing of people to actually protest outside of politicians' houses that they don't like, you know, and there's a part of me, depend, it, it's context specific, but there's a part of me that goes, yeah, well, that's our fundamental right. As long as you're not kicking down someone's door, you have the right to protest in this country. On the other hand, people have been getting death threats. People have had their lives, you know, just like they weren't, they didn't feel like it was just tough talk that all kinds of things have been happening. And so, and then you think of like the framers of the constitution and the American revolution, and they're saying, hey, we're fighting uh, for freedom, which has all kinds of ironies that we don't need to get into. But that by the time they realize that the Articles of Confederation aren't going to cut it, uh, some of the discussion was centered around, we don't want mob rule to dictate uh, the direction of this new republic, when the mob are the people, and the people are trying, presumably, to get get out from under the boot of the British monarchy. And so I feel this tension of like, the one side of me goes, we have the right to say whatever the fuck we want in this country. And I guess I have to tolerate the idiots. And actually, I want to hear from the neo-Nazis, because if you say some crazy shit, you've just announced yourself and now we know who you are. You know, And that's actually, right. in a way, keeps us safer. But on the other hand, when do you actually have a situation where both, I don't know if it's uh, as prevalent on the left. I'm sure there's been instances, certainly I've been focused more on the right, but, and some of their behavior, but, you know, again, when, and, and, and this is why I'm bringing this up and maybe raising the stakes because the stakes are raised. If we're not just saying, I like that movie, the special effects were great. The action was badass, And actually, no, these films are consciously or unconsciously training people's minds in fascist directions. That's really troublesome to me. And so a, I definitely feel like we should push back against that in any way, shape, or form, in any way that fascism, anti-Semitism, uh, racism, misogyny rears its ugly head. Um, and and yes, but poor A.O. Scott getting you know nailed to the wall for just writing a film review. And again, the odd we have the right to protest um, a film or a politician, but. At what point are you actually really getting into a dangerous uh, situation that's that's not really in the spirit of democracy? Yeah, I think that's that's pretty much exactly where we are right now. If Sam Jackson listens to this podcast, I'm going to tell him it was all your idea. Oh, no, well, I'm going to blame it on Zach. <laughs>